swinging in the void. She had nothing for him to steal. Formless and passive, the stench of decay surrounds. The darkness closes in, a noose tightens, his hand palpating my bare thighs. Pale in the diffuse forest light, free to roam. Toiling, sweating, existence in turmoil. Life's no picnic, after all. His empty caress, the emotionless groping. Distant expression, glassy-eyed and mechanical, increasingly remote. They called him Satan. But in the flesh, you wouldn't have looked twice at him. He looked just like everybody else. He had no particular aura. You'd think he'd have something about him. Something awry, something amiss. A malignant halo. But outwardly, he was just another loser. Hectored by his wife, mocked by his colleagues. What happens to daydreams when they don't come true? He consoles himself through hunting game, live prey. And the bodies, gone now, but seared into his memory. That was Audrey Sauce reading from her book, Tears of a Comsomal Girl. She's the guest on Wake Island today. I thought this conversation was a fascinating romp through the chambers of Audrey's mind. I think her book is a phenomenal read. And if you're a fan of writers like Baudelaire, Rimbaud, Guyoto, and old school Poppy Z. Bright, I think you're going to love this book. Tears of a Comsomal Girl about a young girl in 1980s Russia who exists in this carefree Soviet world of discipline which is tainted by these morbid fantasies and dreams that center around real-life serial killer Andre Chikatilo who back in the late 70s 80s and early 90s murdered over 50 women and children This book is definitely not for the faint of heart, but if you're that kind of person, you probably aren't listening to this show. I think it's just so deliciously dark. Audrey's way of using language to evoke atmosphere and visceral horror is simply a pleasure to read. And there's also these images throughout the book where Audrey stages herself as the main character, both as a murdered victim and as the studious Komsomol girl. And I think the photographs really add this performative vibe to the book, which I'm a fan of. And we talk about this during the interview. You can get Tears from a Comfortable Girl now from Infinity Land Press, which if you're not familiar with, I recommend you check out. They've got some really beautifully designed books and I just love their sensibility. It's so very dark and elegant. I'm going to spare you from any kind of prolonged groveling on my end but if you can please rate wake island on itunes and if you can throw me a couple bones you can do so through the links in the bio and if you're feeling randy horny 
manic, or just plain lonely, feel free to send me a voice message. That link is also in the show notes. So here it is, my conversation with Audrey Hassas. strange question because I've spoken to people about it before and they say oh that's that's interesting you moved around a lot but but to me it was just I didn't know anything different so but I, I definitely think it affected me in various ways that are probably not necessarily positive but it it, it, it made me really introverted for a start um, and I was I was prone to imagining things, dissociating and escaping, and sort of I never really had a feeling that I belonged anywhere. So yeah, I, ju- I just felt very rootless and alienated, and and there was always the transitory nature of everything, like. I, I always knew that I was going to leave. So whenever I sort of made friendships or contacts, then there was this inevitability that I would lose them. So that that led to a kind of emotional withdrawal, really. I started to withdraw emotionally because obviously when you're young and you have to keep losing your friends, it's quite painful. And then then you start to expect this to occur. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, there's like a fatalism. And then to, up to a point you just switch off. You, you sort of can, you start to switch off. It's very strange. And, yeah, I think it, it made me become really solipsistic. Well, I have to say, I mean, I identify with what you're saying in a variety of ways because my parents are Polish. They immigrated and I also moved around a lot and English wasn't my first language. And I also had the added (laughs) challenge of also moving around a lot, never having roots, never being able to establish friendships I'm also an only child. I think you are as well. And then there was the language thing. And I ended up having to go to first grade two times because I I couldn't just... It's a nightmare. It kind of is, but it also made me into an observer. And something that when I read your book, it really, like, I really enjoyed the... Like, I could tell that it was authentic. It was an authentic voice of somebody that also grew up as an, an, an observer that was taking in not just the the visuals, but the psychic energy of the time. So tell me, where were you born? Like, where did your narrative start? Well, I was, I was born in Vienna, uh-huh. in Austria, um, where my father happened to be working at the time. And he, he's a civil engineer. Well, he, he's passed away now, but he was a civil engineer. So, And he was, um, he was obsessed with languages. So he was like he was studying German and Swedish at university and things. 
And then he um, he married my mother. And they're both from very different backgrounds. So, like, on my father's side, there's this sort of um, Hungarian side. and on But on my mother's side, it's, like, just Irish. <laughs> so... <laughs> Kind of a weird combination, but that's that's how I ended up knowing English. So it's not your first language either. I mean, I would say it is because of my mother. Like my mother was always speaking to me in English, so yeah. That's fascinating. And then, at what point did you end up in Russia, which is the setting of your book, and also during a very specific time in Russia? That was the early two thousands. Yeah, and I was I was really quite young then, so it's like I um, I think I said in the interview at the at the end of the novel, it's my my recollections of that time because it's because it's so long ago. They're so hazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Most, most of what I remember are, are things like just sort of being led around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a strange time as well. I'm assuming you were never there for, like, early 90s, late 80s, right? No, I missed all of that. Yeah. I asked you if you could send me a bunch of, or a list of of videos that you used as, I don't know, primer or as a way to enter into the aesthetic of this. uh, Your book takes place in, what, the late 80s, early 90s, like right at the fall of communism? I guess I I figured it would be at sort of like 80, 1987 or 88, but really just late 80s in a, I don't think I specified an exact time because I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have wanted to commit, commit to it in the novel. I would wanted, wanted it to have some kind of mystique or like maybe even a sense of unreality about it. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I think you do that, though, because what I thought was interesting about that specific time, and I'd never been to Russia during that time, but I'd gone to Poland. And I do remember that it was a transitional moment, which is very much like the moment we're in now, which is a very strange kind of stretched out moment that feels like neither here nor there. And it's one of these things when it's happening, it doesn't feel like it's anything. But then when you look back on it, like especially when you sent me all of these videos of new wave Russian music and these old movies, I was just so struck by the aesthetic and just this persistent theme of discipline, austerity, straight lines. There's a smoldering intensity to these solitary uh, characters. And there's also a color palette that is so consistent in Eastern Europe. It's a mix of deep greens and pale blues and slate grays. And I feel like you actually did assimilate all of those aspects into your book. I mean, the first thing is, I mean, one of the things that a lot of, um, for example, Western writers do when they talk about the Soviet Union or Russia or Eastern Europe or the Eastern Bloc is they they overemphasize the political nature of reality, whereas I I, I mean I always have understood the political reality is like is something that's completely divorced from most people's lived experience 
So, for example, if, if you read a Soviet newspaper or a communist newspaper in the 80s, probably they're just going to be talking about we've, we've uh, produced so many tanks <laughs> this month or we've exceeded this quota or this coal mine has made so many billions of tons of coal, whatever. But people's everyday life would, would have been, they wouldn't have cared about that. And, and that's why, um, and I think that's why the narrator, Irina, she, she's aware of this like fake reality of uh, what they're sort of imposing on her f- from above. But then there's the, the day-to-day life. And I think there's, people are always at odds with that, even, in, even now. Oh, yeah, especially now. <laughs> because we're sort of saturated with various forms of propaganda anyway. But yeah, in, in terms of the aesthetics, I, I really think there's a... There's also like a very practical reason for that in the, in the sense that, especially in the Soviet Union, as, as I understand it, the film companies... The, the people that were producing films, all of that was very centralized. So it wasn't like in in the West where you can start up your own independent company, right? Like I think in the Soviet Union, they maybe only had one record label or something, right, um, under communism. So so all of these film companies, like there's Len Film from Leningrad and Moss Film from Moscow and so on, I think that they're, they're basically all using the same equipment. So there's a color palette right there. It's like the limitations of technology, but but also on the practical side, it's just this is the equipment we're using. And so right across the whole spectrum of whether they're making films, TV shows, whatever, it's the same, it's the same film stock. So it has that certain color or it has or it's the same, you know, the same cameras, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's interesting, but I'm not really a detail-oriented person. And, I mean, I could be, but then I'd get really lost in those details. And, and But I prefer to um, look at the bigger picture, you know, sort of zoom out <laughs> and, and see the patterns rather than be obsessed with tiny technicalities, I guess. We've been kind of going in circles about your book, but I think maybe now is like a good time to give the audience an overview of what Tears of a Cosimal Girl is about. It's probably not, well, it's probably not a coincidence that we've gone around in a circle because because I just love to digress. I love to change the subject. I'm really good at it. (laughs) So what is this book about? Well, on the face of it, it's about Andre Chikatilo, a mass murderer who was um, born in Ukraine in the Soviet Union. And then he sort of drifted around murdering children and vulnerable women and so on and so on. So quite a, quite a strange guy, <laughs> to put it mildly. But, you know, I'm approaching this novel in my own way, and I'm thinking to myself, write a book about Chikatilo, and what what can you do? 
you either have to stay with him the entire time and sort of either inhabit his mind space, which is quite bizarre, or you put yourself in the role of the detective or the omniscient narrator and you take a clinical, more objective approach. But I really wanted to write about the perspective of the victim and of the youth and the people that the kind of people that he preyed upon. So then there's the dilemma of like, well if they if they're gonna die repeatedly <laughs> how like how do you how, how do you then cope with that? Do you just continually like body hop from victim to victim? That again, that's not something I was gonna do. I was never gonna write a linear novel with a with a straightforward chronological narrative and, and a plot. And I thought, I'm always writing these kind of s surreal, absurd, experimental novels. What I want to do is, I want to transcend reality. I want to I create a place where my narrator, like she can die, but then she can still narrate her own story, which is contradictory and paradoxical. And I suppose a lot of purists would say, oh, this is quite nonsensical. But to me, it was, it, was the only, it was the only logical decision to take, by which I mean to say it was completely irrational and insane, and that, that's definitely why I wanted to do it that way. Yeah, because, as you know, we're talking about quoting Ballard, but, you know, Ballard said, in a completely sane world, madness is the only freedom. <laughs> so... <laughs> I love that you use atmosphere in a way to give your book momentum and through that it builds thematically chapter by chapter and you do so by using language in place of traditional plot and I know that sounds very reductive like all books use language but your book really reminded me a lot of um, uh, Pierre Guyot's Eden 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 and that like you are so consistent and so skilled in the way that you approach this, that it, it becomes very sensual in the sense that it has smell and it has texture. And I'm very much reminded of Baudelaire and Rimbaud and as we've been mentioning, Ballard. So does that yeah. sound accurate to you? And are, were these writers that you gravitated towards as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, especially when I first started reading seriously. I mean, I loved um, Baudelaire and I loved André Breton and mm. I loved, the, I loved um, surrealist poetry. And that was the, you know, that was my main influence, like was reading the Surrealist Manifesto. And, you know, there's even a segment in there where Breton sort of says how to write false novels and he just sort of says, you know, switch on and just start start writing. You, you'll end up writing something that resembles a novel, and I, I and that's more or less what I do to a degree. I mean, obviously that sounds very flippant, and um, but but you know, I don't I don't mean to be so um, you know facile about it because obviously a lot of thought does go into 
my conception of a novel or my ideas about how it's going to be or how how it should be or for, or how an Audrey Sass novel should be because I don't I don't really care about what other people do I mean they do whatever they like maybe I like it or maybe I don't like it but it's really none of my business what I'm really concerned with is just what am I going to do here and I sort of, I conceive of it as a, an immersion or, you know, becoming completely drowned or submerged or like, you know, this imagery of sinking into another reality or another mode of being, another way of thinking. And it's very unconscious. I'm not the kind of person who's like a little professor who's going to be like, this is how I solve the Rubik's Cube. And, you know, this is how I won the chess match. When I'm writing a novel, it's very instinctive. It's, it's really unconscious. I literally just put myself into a zone, which is very non-critical. I don't critique myself at all. I just do whatever I do naturally, instinctively. And I'm completely self-indulgent, which is, could be a good thing. I'm, you know, I'm completely, um, I just do exactly what I want to do. I don't ask any questions. And then afterwards, like a nice person like yourself may say to me, you know, what, what were you thinking? And in a way, it's like I, I was just doing it. I don't, I don't know if that sounds really pretentious or like zen was some kind of weird, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if it, I'm not, you know, it sounds really pretentious, doesn't it? Oh, God. No, but it doesn't sound pretentious. It's just that I wouldn't even say this is a critique or of, of any kind, but I think you're talking about this this kind of automatic writing that the surrealists did, you know, where like they just kind of let whatever association come from their mind onto the canvas or on the page. And I think you do that to a certain degree, but what I was really drawn to is your rigor. I mean, this is a very well-written book. It is not impressionistic. It is very pointed. It's deliciously dark. There's humor in it. Yeah, and I, I get into a zone when I'm writing. I don't express myself very well verbally. I never have done. Nonsense. You're doing it just fine. <laughs> yeah, but it, it doesn't feel, it, does, it feels inadequate to express myself verbally in, mm. in a strange way. Whereas if I'm writing, that, like, I know I can do that, <laughs> right? But... I mean, in terms of the writing, it's it's like image. To me, it's like an image transfer. Mm. And I, I'm a sponge, and I have, I kind of have a, I sort of have a photographic memory, which is it's not a hundred percent accurate. Like you couldn't show me a document, and then I'd be able to like print it off, you know, <laughs> later on and like write it all down, but. If you show me pictures, if you show me movies, and I'm reading things, it, it's all it all becomes images in my in my brain. And there's a, and I think that most artists, well, especially visual artists as well, experience a kind of synesthesia, more or less, to a to some degree. They have a, a color palette. They and they experience this 
merging of senses. And I and I definitely do. So I personally feel like I, I feel like I'm a sponge and I, I can watch movies, I can I can look at postcards, I can go places, hear things, walk around, I soak it all in. And then somehow when I you know, when I I'm like a Philip K. Dick character, like one of his <laughs> dark haired girls who goes in a he's like slightly mental and then gets goes in a trance and she's just pouring out all of this information. That's kind of what I'm like, really. Yeah, but I also think you're much more accessible than that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's nothing in this book that I would I would tell somebody, like, uh, this is very experimental lit. You know, you really need to have a context to read it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It works on its own. That's, that's another thing that I've... You know, I'm working on because I, I find that I say things about myself. Like I would say, oh, this is a very experimental book. And it might make people think, oh, maybe, yeah, this is inaccessible. And then they read it and go, oh, okay, this is this is quite readable. And then I might say something like, oh, I think I'm, I think my writing is trans, transgressive today. I think it's very transgressive. And other people will say, what you mean? You've literally written about a man wandering around a, a desolate wasteland, knifing women in the face over and over again. It's like, no, I don't mean like that. I just, I don't know. I just mean, um, I, I just think there's, there's an element of subversion in there. Oh, absolutely. Like, don't get me wrong. It is. It, it is very subversive. I sort of, this is what I mean about the verbal limitations. Like, I, the language I use Language means different things to different people. Like so, like I say, we are living in our own weird reality, and for some person, imaginative might mean a completely different thing to somebody else. This, these ideas uh, are not necessarily, uh, I don't know, interche interchangeable between people. We don't necessarily know that we're talking about the same thing. So, <laughs> without wanting to be philosophical, you know. Well, let me read you a passage, and I will apologize in advance for reading your words in my horrible American nasally oh, voice. You sound I very charismatic like and glamorous to some very <laughs> trash girl like me hearing a North American oh. accent. Very, you know, I listen to this all day. Well, <laughs> well, I'll take the compliment, but I'm my own uh, human <laughs> trash as well. But this passage is one that I loved, and it's, Night is stronger than day. The darkness weighs heavier upon us, and he would appear as twilight waned, especially during those summer and autumn months of the South, hoping to lure unwitting youngsters to their premature deaths. Oh, Mama, I'm so sick. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I insist on talking to strangers whenever I ride around town? Why do I climb out of windows, sneak out of school, cruise around after dark when I should be doing my homework? Mama, I'm so terribly unwell. I think I've completely lost my mind. Yeah, this is just my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's great. It's so fun. Yeah, this is just... This is just my, my mindset that I'm in, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the right yeah. place, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think that people listening to this are, are I think, are going to love it as much as me. 
and as I think as much as you enjoy doing it. Yeah, I can't, I can't help it, but I just, I just do what comes, what feels right. It just, you know, if it feels good, it can't be bad, right? That's <laughs> something you know, so yeah. so nice. Must be good in some way. Must be healthy in <laughs> in some way. <laughs> No, I think that makes sense because there's a strong sense of pathos in this book. And, you know, I want to talk about the serial killer element and I'm not like going to put some sort of moral spin on it, but it did make me think, why am I always so drawn to this topic? And I'm not somebody that like, I don't like, I don't love horror movies. I'm not like, I'm not an especially cruel person, but it did make me think a lot about what is so compelling about serial killers and it's in my mind since I've read your book and had been just thinking about it a little bit more deeply it's just that there are people that have done something that has transgressed so far beyond reason or justification that it's almost that their actions relegate them to this world that we can only imagine it has to be fantasy and we also have this need to imagine that there's some sort of motivation or there's some sort of feeling behind what they're doing and why they're doing it. But I think in reality, when you listen to them and you hear them, they're empty. They're these sociopaths. They objectively live in this place where we almost by necessity have to project our own aesthetics and narratives onto them because Otherwise, there's just this compulsion to pathologize when there's nothing really there. Yeah. Do you know I what mean, I mean? I, I get it exactly. And that I was talking about hypocrisy, but there's also a level where, you know, for example, um, for example, there was a there was a girl that um, um, bullied me at school, and um, at the time said quite a few hurtful things to me that hurt my feelings. Oh, that's so terrible, right? But anyway, I, I saw her like years later by chance and she was like, hey, how's it going? What are you up to? What are you doing here in London? Amazing, right? And I was like, do you remember the last time we were hanging out? You were literally making my life hell. But she was just, like, totally oblivious. And if I'd said to her or accused her of something, she would have said, I never did that. Come on. We were just kidding around. Don't take it so seriously. So I think there's a level where people will justify their own behavior. I mean, me included. I mean, you know, I'm not, like, a saint or anything. But I think people live in their own reality and they can justify their own behavior and information that doesn't necessarily fit in with their worldview. They disregard or deny it or, you know, and and in a weird way, perhaps serial killers are just really very extreme versions of that where, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, they probably don't feel any remorse. They They just do what they do because it felt, right to them at the time or they were compelled to do it for one reason or another but I've, I've, I feel like everybody sort of uh, justifies their own behaviour inwardly in, in their own way of making sense of the world and making sense of the chaos 
of reality, you know, myself included, I, you know, I wouldn't ever hold myself apart from the general humanity. <laughs> if I'm going to accuse humanity <laughs> of being corrupt, then, you know, I would say, well, I'm obviously part of that in some some very sorry, pathetic way. <laughs> yeah. But I think that also relates to the serial killer conversation in that by doing something transgressive, whether it be in art or life, you do it with the intention that it will transform into something else. You know, cruelty that's just done for the sake of being cruel never becomes great art. It doesn't go anywhere. There's no transformation that becomes, I don't want to say catharsis because I don't believe in it, but it doesn't, it's not, it's like the missing third element of any given object that will elevate it to the realm of fine art. And the serial killer to me seems to have done this transgressive Mm -hmm. thing, but found themselves trapped in this liminal place that is outside of reality and outside of all proper conventions of it so they're forever doomed to be stuck in this in this space that's neither here nor there and we want to know why we want to and a lot of times like we want to be part of it i mean that's why we do drugs that's why we do transgressive crazy things and why maybe you know somebody feels a certain kind of pleasure from something painful and well i I sort of think that I, in my experience, fantasy or imagination is is much more satisfying or potent than reality. And I, I don't think reality can ever mm. live up to your wildest, sickest fantasies. Always enjoyable fantasies. <laughs> it, it can never live up. So there's the element where the imagination, I mean, if you're lucky enough to have one, it, then that can become all-consuming. And I think... I think the certain serial killers, especially um, someone like Andre Chikatilo, you know, he would have had his sadistic fantasies, and then he wanted to put them into practice. And there's, like you said, they get stuck in this sort of, as you said, like a liminal space. But we also assume that a human being wants to be understood in some way. There has to be a mutual exchange or some kind of empathy, right? And um, but the problem is, once you've once you've gone out and murdered some children, who who can actually empathise with you? Who do you um, who do you communicate with to get that kind of level of understanding? No yeah. one. You're an empty and, vessel. But arguably, someone like Chikatilo had a, you know, potentially some. Might may have been regarded as having some kind of schizoid personality traits or a disorder, obviously, which is to say he he wasn't actually satisfied by human relationships. Obviously, he was, you know, he was very withdrawn, and and he lived a fantasy life where, in his day to day work he he was he was like a low-level employee and people were sort of like bossing him around and they thought he was very strange and aloof and kind of creepy but in his own mind he could go out and be he could become like 
God, you know. He could become um, Stalin. <laughs> he could live out and, like, <laughs> you know, manipulate people, overpower them, and, you know, ultimately sacrifice them to his own whims, which is, I don't know, I don't know what it is about humanity that, um, or certain people that would find that kind of thing fascinating. I, I find anything abnormal or pathological quite interesting for some, for some reason. Obviously, without endorsing any of those um, situations or uh, occurrences or whatever. But I, I honestly do just find um, this sort of transgression... But as a writer, I would say at least I'm honest about it. Whereas, you know, if I trained as a psychiatrist or, or you know, a psychopathologist or whatever, or become, or God forbid, you know, jo- try to join the police, <laughs> you know, then I'd be sort of saying, I want to do, I want to, you know, I think my motives would be just as sick as my motives are now. But I'd be, I'd be hiding behind this idea. I'm doing a good thing. But I, you know, and I think that's hypocritical. So that just goes back to my book. And, and that's what the main uh, character, Irina, that's what she's all about because she's living in one reality. And then there's this whole other reality where she's supposed to believe in socialism. She's supposed to believe in the good of the people and um, so on and so on. And I, I find that disconnect. I find that gulf between social norms and people's secret desires or secret thoughts, I find that very interesting. And I I think that's probably the only place where you can actually be honest. I mean, honest with yourself, with oneself, is when you sort of say, for example... For example, if there's like a pandemic and there's a lockdown and you say to yourself, I actually don't care if the law says that I'm only allowed to leave my house once in a day, I'm going to go out 10 times and I'm going to enjoy breaking this little law. I mean, you know what I mean? I think think at least people can be honest about it and um, not be a total hypocrite and, and admit that they enjoy being being naughty and breaking the rules every now and again but this is really small fry stuff isn't it like this is this is the sort of level that we've got to where disobedience is like leaving your house i mean that's crazy but that's like the micromanaged level we're at and i, I find that quite funny actually it's i'm I find it very absurd. (laughs) It's like being in high school, you know. You know when you're in high school, if you have to wear a uniform and, like, like your tie is not straight and the teacher says, look, (laughs) straighten the tie. And it's as if it's the most important thing in the whole goddamn world, you know. Mm. It's just, it's like total uh, mind control. It's micromanaging. But, you know, I find it funny. This... I find I find existence pretty absurd, so I, I'm prepared to uh, laugh about it, more or less. <laughs> well, it is completely absurd, but I think as far as your writing and your role as an artist, 
not to say that there is a role that kind of made me sound like an asshole, but I do think it, it takes a certain amount of nuance, compassion, and subjectivity to develop this scenario where there's a fantasy world and an actual relationship that's happening on the page that crosses both societal norms and secret thoughts. And I don't know, I, this is just one of the most compelling parts about your book is that I thought there was something very fascinating between your main character, Irina, and the serial killer, Andrzej Chikatilo, which is very rooted in toxic love. Maybe it's impossible love. There's also something performative about it. And it just made me think about, or it just made me feel that there's a real sense of pathos there, where it's almost like falling head over heels for the wrong person, where you're doing something that you know is wrong, but you just don't care because you've willed it into existence. And now, no matter how bad it gets, it doesn't even matter, which is, I think, kind of what we're talking about by breaking these, you know, small rules. And But it's just, it's, it's a toxic attraction to doing that. Going, yeah, going back to Chikatilo and um, Irina, I think there is um, there is a strange relationship but really, um, it, you know, without wanting to digress or, you know, intellectualize, I, I think it's really about the archetypes. When you have, um, you know, urban legends about child killers and, you know, if you don't, if you don't do this, or if you stay out late or if you, if you go outside, you know, the child catcher is going to come and kill you. It's very nightmarish. It's, it's the kind of thing where when you're very young, to hear about these serial killers is, is very frightening. I mean, I remember reading about serial killers when I was a kid and and literally having some weird, developing some strange phobias, you know. <laughs> um, but then Arena is is sort of an archetype as well because she's she's the ideal... I mean, she's pretending to be the ideal Komsomol girl, so... And maybe for the audience, uh, define what that is. Komsomol is um, the Soviet Union's Communist Youth League, so they're basically... I, I guess it's kind of like an equivalent of, like, the Scouts, like the boy, the Girl Scouts, um, mm-hmm. and it's very politically motivated, so... They're going to teach you stuff about, they're going to make you sing songs about Lenin. They're going to make you sing songs about socialism. You're going to go to the camp in the summer <laughs> and you're going to like um, have a have a bonfire. You're going to do marching, sing these marching songs, play in a band. And you're going to learn all about socialism. You're going to learn all about making the world a better place world peace, um, the labor movement, you know, sort of like the dignity of the working class and equality and brotherhood and how the West are colonial imperialist oppressors and, you know, that we're building, um, we're building socialism to make the world more humane. Yeah, which... You know, well, on the on the face of it, those are actually quite ad- admirable things. <laughs> but, right. But then, but then you come to like human nature and the sort of like 
I, I don't want to sound really nihilistic, but then then you get to the hurdle of human nature and corrupt the corruption, inherent selfishness, and and there's also the fact that human beings don't live very long. If people lived for for hundreds of years, it might actually be worth trying to change things in in a positive way, but. Who you know? Who's actually really willing to sacrifice their life for something that they're not even going to benefit from? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm just being too cynical, though, right? I think maybe. I think I'm being too cynical. Actually, I don't know. Back to you know what I was talking about. Like there, there is a this sense of cynicism to the book. And to what you're saying, but to me, it's, I guess it's, it, there's something inherently funny about it. And I don't mean that in a diminutive way. Like it kind of adds a little bit of levity to all the, the darkness that you have going on. And I'm, it is kind of funny, I think. Yeah. It's hilarious actually. Simply, simply because of the, the throwaway remarks and nihilism, but, but even in this interview, I, I think that to a certain extent, the reason I'm being so cynical and nihilistic is because I'm, I'm literally falling back on the arena character, whereas on another day, if you ask me the same question, I might, you know, I might potentially say something completely different. I might say something way more positive and humane and really nice, but discussing this book, it sends me right back into the mindset of the narrator and I, I really sank into her persona and you know it did take me a while to get her out of my system maybe she's still there and she's <laughs> I don't want to sound like completely crazy but her cynicism is coming out even in this interview well it's funny because I'm the most cynical nihilistic person I know like the few friends that I have would all probably all just be like this guy drives me fucking crazy because of that but it's funny because while I'm talking to you I find myself (laughs) reverting into a place of wanting to you know move away from that because it seems like something too familiar to me so I'm, I'm looking for as we were just talking about this, this toxic love that I, I, that to me in this book feels very rooted in something authentic. When you were writing this and writing about this dream nightmare on Elm Street esque relationship between this young girl and this conservative Soviet whatever I don't know you call it a club or whatever that's mixed with this insane serial killer there was something about it that felt very real and I'm curious if you had like a love interest or whether it be real or imagined that you were fantasizing about while you were doing this like I'm curious where that that authenticity comes from because I know it doesn't come from cynicism oh thank you well thank you for saying that because I'm amazing sorry my dog is oh it's amazing (laughs) yeah it's an amazing bar (laughs) go ahead sorry like bring that into the interview (laughs) I'll start it with that (laughs) no I'm, I'm glad you say that because 
I don't like to think of myself as a cynical person, uh, and I don't. I don't think that anything of um, any books I've created have come from that perspective. Actually, they've come from quite a positive. I don't know. I I guess you'd say like an optimistic state of mind. I mean, in terms of um, Tears of a Comsomol Girl, I I obviously have used my own experiences in this book. You know, I've. I've been, um, I've been arena. I've I've been on the train and had older men just start talking to me. I've stayed out too late, and sort of, um, you know, been going home at like 10 p.m. and had some weird guys talking to me on the tube or on the train or whatever, you know, on the metro. <laughs> so it it all feeds it all feeds in to. You know, these are my memories sort of feeding into the novel in in some weird way. But also my, uh, I don't know if it, maybe in some way it just does reflect my strange um, proclivities. (laughs) When I I write about these kind of scenarios, um, and I, I think in some way it probably is a reflection of my, you know my typical fantasies for for better or worse. In in terms of Arena and Chikatilo, the focus is very much. Um, I I think that they they can never they can never really interact because, for example, her vision of him and his vision of her. That you know it's it's not. I don't believe that they. They possess an empathy where they come to a mutual understanding. So I don't believe it's like a kind of romantic. It could never be a kind of romantic experience where you're they're on the same wavelength. I I literally think it's um, she she sees something in him, and he sees something in her. But then they're not really uh, they're interacting on a level. But then but they're also. They're also irre- irretrievably separated by what each of them represents. In, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Well, it's interesting because there's almost it's, there's almost something Victorian about it. But what's different is that both characters are giving in to their darkest desire, and through that, generating a kind of agency. But it's also something that just is very romantic at the same time because it's this 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 love can just never happen. It can only just culminate into bursts of, of violence and fantasy. Ultimately, it can only end in you know destruction. Really, you know, it's like a, nothing productive or creative can really come out of this liaison. And and when when the two of them meet, you know, it is purely it is purely destructive. And if you you know, in the novel when she converses with him, she she starts she immediately starts spinning a story which is completely ridiculous. She you know, she's acting, he's acting. They're they're not really interacting. Do you see what I mean? She's mm-hmm. she's sort of representing herself as this innocent young girl, 
and he's representing himself as like a harmless paternal figure, even though that's clearly not the underlying um, <laughs> motivation at all. No. <laughs> right, but it's like the 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 face they show the world, which is the one they're not happy with, the one that is always disguised. And it's hard for them to to meet on a level yeah. that isn't just totally primal. Yeah, and I and I can relate to that because that goes back to my personal experience in my upbringing. So, and I and I think everyone can to a degree. In certain situations, we're forced to wear a mask. I mean, obviously, if I'm with my best friends. The reason I enjoy it is because I'm actually allowed to be myself. Whereas, you know, there are certain social functions where you're just, you're literally just performing an, an, some kind of emotional or social labor until <laughs> we relax, right? Well, that's, it's interesting you bring that up, though, because I'm curious to know what your relationship is to the reader. Because a previous guest that I had spoken to said that when she writes, she writes to a friend she can tell her most shameful mm-hmm. secrets to. But I get something totally different from you. There's a very performative element there, and it's obvious in the language, but it's also evident in the photos that are in the book, which are all of you. So I would love to just hear more about that, because does that seem accurate or insane to you i mean in terms of in terms of my relationship with the reader when as i'm as i'm in the process of writing yeah it's it's an odd thing because it's i think there's a phrase for this they say it's an an elephant in the room because it's it's something that should be really obvious but it's, it's also something that i I probably consciously ignore when I'm when I'm writing. I literally just. I know this sounds terrible, but I probably don't think about the reader, other than um, I think it's more the fact that I I have a feeling that each reader brings their own particular interpretation to my book, and um, I can't account for it, and I can't. And, and so the the idea that I might try to write with the reader in mind it it just seems it seems like an impossible task because which you know which reader each reader is a different individual so I you know I honestly I just think about I'm very selfish I'm very self absorbed. Um, I'm a brat. I just think about myself. I'm very spoiled. Don't care. I just write whatever the hell I want. And in a way, maybe I am my own audience. Maybe it's some kind of sad, narcissistic uh, parade. But I'm just writing it to reflect my own, um, you know, ver- various um, creative needs or my own need to produce something. But that's so interesting to me because I feel the exact opposite. I feel that just from reading your your language, I'm in denial. Maybe 
I wouldn't say you're in denial. I would just say I think you you are totally accurate in what you're saying about your your intentions and your process and who you are. But as a, as a reader, I feel like I'm reading something that is very performative. Like this is a book that you could stand and read into a microphone to yeah. a crowd of people that don't like this, this subject matter that would not be interested in this book. And they would be like, oh, shit, this is entertaining or this is definitely written with the intent to enthrall and to entertain and to showcase a certain level of grammar and linguistics. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, um, it doesn't feel like some sort of work of outsider art. And there's photos in this book and all the photos are of you. So there's an, not only does the language have a performative element to it, but you are in fact performing in the book as the character. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's true, and um, it's it's really nice of you to say that because, you know, when I'm writing, I'm I guess I'm you know I'm right in the middle of it. I'm in the I'm in the midst of it. I'm I'm in the eye of the storm. So I'm not. I don't have access to that more objective viewpoint or the viewpoint of the reader who's able to analyze it from a distance. Because it's literally something that's um, like just pouring or radiating out of my brain or my consciousness or whatever onto into a Word document and then into a book. So it's really interesting that you should say that. But I think I think you're right. But it's something. It's an awareness that I've either intentionally repressed or you know i've i've repressed it for unknown reasons i don't don't even know why i've <laughs> ignored this fact maybe maybe it suits me better when i'm writing to pretend that i'm just writing for myself and then obviously in the back of it's a conceit because in the back of my mind we all know that i want people to read this book or i hope people will enjoy it and and there's there's the element where i'm I'm going to agree to perform these um, photo shoots, and and a lot of thought did go into them, especially in terms of the posture and the facial expressions. I mean, maybe just not to interrupt. Sorry, but maybe give the the audience some more context. Like, what are the photos of, and why are you in these positions? Well, I I was interested in the dichotomy, I guess. Um, when people talk about before and after, there's always this uh, comparison. So on the one hand, most of the photos are very, half of the photos are very portrait-oriented, and they feature me. But I'm, you know, I'm trying to be in, in character as the narrator, as arena. And so I will I would dress up in these uniforms and various sort of like 80s outfits and I will put myself into character and and this is the so there's like the ideal young girl there's the ideal pioneer the ideal young communist 
and then there's also the sort of um, young rebel, you might you might call it like a teenage rebel. And then there's also like the sweet the sweet girl, the talented musician. This kind of um, almost like Soviet propaganda or like a like a, a dream childhood or a dream adolescence of where you know which doesn't really exist in real life. And then the contrast is the you know are the black and white shots which, you know, I forgot to mention, the, the portraits are in sort of colour. Mm-hmm. And then the death, sort of like the death shots are, are sort of like the crime scenes. And that's, that's sort of arena as, as the victim, as, as a corpse. So that's, and that's the, that's the reality, that's the corporeality of, um, the reality of, being mortal and um, victimhood, really. And why did you want to use yourself as the actor that's in these photos? I think I just use whatever is at my disposal. And, and the only thing that I have access to is myself, really. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have access to anyone else who's going to... You know, do you see what I mean? I kind of do, but I also, you know, you're not taking the photos. Somebody else is. So you've still found another person to to mediate your vision through by being the performer. You know what I mean? It almost would be easier if you were behind the camera and got an actress to do it. Yeah, but, the, you know, the, vis- the visual aspect of the book is, is very much a collaborative effort with um, Carolina Urbaniak. She's a an amazing photographer and uh, publisher from Infinity Land Press. She's one half of it with uh, Martin Blood, who's an amazing artist. So, you know, I could have released a book that was just purely text, but I had this opportunity to collaborate with an amazing photographer who was going to share my vision and bring her own ideas and technical skills and experience to the design and to me it was just an amazing opportunity and and I thought you know let's do it yeah so in in a way it was opportunistic but I suppose it it felt important to me at the time to bring this sort of visual aspect of the book out and really make it come alive through the illustrations and the collages and the photographs and um you know really it was something i i wanted to perform at i i i felt that i'd sort of strangely lived this experience of the narrator and it's a really odd thing because there was i don't remember there being at any point a decision to do this these photo shoots Mm -hmm. I was like, I mean, there must have been at some point, but to me, and in fact, the way I remember it, it was just like a logical, it was just the logical, natural thing to do that just happened of its own accord somehow. I mean, obviously it didn't. Obviously there must have been discussions and and so on. But to me, it just seemed like the natural outcome of this um 
particular collaboration. I totally understand what you're saying because I'm new to Infinity Land Press and I've been actually immersing myself in their catalog and I've been in, I've had a correspondence with Carolina and I've yes. just been very enamored by how consistent their aesthetic is and how much mm-hmm. care they put into not only defining that and producing it, but creating these really beautiful objects that I I really appreciate that they're books. They need to be seen as books. It doesn't translate to the web or an ebook. It it really requires you to have the object. And I love when publishers like Infinity Land Press create collaborations with the authors that they're putting out, which I think you were able to do with them. And I I, I don't know, I I just commend everybody involved and and I'm just really uh, impressed by it. I mean, one of the, um, I I suppose one of the risks for me talking about this is that I I don't feel like I can really articulate properly sort of like the various aesthetic aims or motives of other artists. I can only speak for myself and... um, so I'm very hesitant to sort of ascribe various um, or attribute various motives to uh, my publishers and so on, because obviously I would prefer them to speak for themselves. I can only really say how I feel. And, and I just thought it was an amazing opportunity to do these photo shoots and to work with these amazing artists. I mean... And I loved it, you know. I really, I really enjoyed dressing up in the outfits and getting into character. I thought it was fantastic fun. It was just something I really wanted to do. So, so it sort of made sense to do it from my point of view. But it, in, I mean, in terms of their point of view, and in terms of the, the the project as a whole, or the you know the design, or their particular aesthetic, or their particular series of. Uh, ongoing series of publications. I mean, I, I can't really speak about that. I can only really talk about my, you know, I've got a very blinkered <laughs> attitude towards my own work, so, yeah. I also know that it's well past uh, 1 a.m. where you are, so let me give you maybe one last parting question. I- Having manifested this book into the world... What gives yeah. you the greatest cathartic joy from having done this? Oh wow, I don't know. I don't know because I, I don't I don't know it's gonna sound so strange, but I don't know if I believe in catharsis. I don't believe in closure. I s so, I'm very fatalistic and I think Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes terrible things happen. And you never really know why. You just have to suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very fatalistic in that regard. But, you know, you just keep you just keep moving. You just keep – you don't um, allow yourself to stagnate. You have to keep moving into the future. <laughs> right, right. You just keep going. But so for, I think for me – and I, you know, I've already said this. My my motives for writing a book are, at this point, at this point in time, they they are quite selfish. I mean, I really do just write for myself, um, more or less. 
um, and my publishers, if I'm produce if I'm producing a particular work or a particular novel for my publishers, like I just really want them to like it, and then I deliver, you know, I deliver the final product, and if they get back to me and say this is good, I'm you know I'm really happy with that. that that just gives me sort of like a sense of achievement, possibly a sense of relief, <laughs> a sense of relief that I haven't written something that's really awful. But um, but but when when a project comes together, and I know this this is probably a cliche, but but when the after all of the hard work of proofreading and editing and um, when you get the final product. You know that that's something quite unique. That's really amazing, especially something like um, Tears of a Comsomol Girl because it, you know, it looks so beautiful. And I I didn't really have a hand in that to be honest. I mean, that was all Carolina's work. She's the designer. So just to have the physical copy was amazing from my point of view. And there is just a sense of achievement in that in that alone. And if um, if I have readers um, in Europe or in North America who are reading my books and they enjoy what I'm doing, that's also quite humbling in a, in a strange way to think that there are people out there who I've never met who actually want to read my books. I mean, I'm obviously in quite a privileged position, but... You worked for it, though. I guess so. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I have I think that's just my particular mindset. I have a very strange mindset in that I did what came naturally and then I live with the consequences. And hopefully the consequences are good and positive. But if they're negative, then I have to I live with that too. I just live with whatever happens. Unless I'm dead, then I'll just be dead. as we are existing in this collective moment of stagnation Mm. i think it's just amazing that you created something that you are not only recognized for but you're appreciated for here on wake island so i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me and I just can't wait to read what you come up with next no matter what your intentions are well it's it's been amazing talking to you and I you know I obviously really appreciate all the nice things you've said about my work so thank you very much for having me on the show I really liked it yeah 